All right, take those Bibles I hope you have in front of you and open to Romans chapter 1. In our last time together, we looked at verses 11 through 15. This morning, we're going to pick up from there and spend our time in looking at verses 16 and 17, a couple of very well-known verses of Scripture. But before we do that, let's back up just a little bit and so we can remind ourselves of the context. Folks, please don't forget the few minutes that I spend every week uh, doing a review is very, very important. Okay, uh, It allows us to see the flow of Scripture and therefore an understanding or give us, if you will, an understanding of the text And what is being said? Why is it being said? To whom is it being said? We want to know these things. And therefore, it helps us to interpret the Scriptures the way God intended it. Kind of like I mentioned a little bit ago as as Dave began in Daniel. You don't just want to say, all right, Daniel 1. What's the context? Why is he reading it? When was it written? You want to know these things. It helps keep our mind into the flow of scriptures. You probably know this, folks. Way too many Christians today take the word of God out of context. Okay? It happens way too much. They act as if the Bible is a bunch of religious snippets. Okay? They act as if it's a bunch of one-liners that they can simply quote or throw out or put on a bumper sticker. And that's the last thing we want. I would like to change that. I want Christians to understand that there is a context to everything that we look at in God's word. What did God mean by what he said? Okay? Always keep those things in mind. All right. Now, there are many things that I could actually uh, share with you this morning from our previous studies, probably from verses 8 through uh, through verses 8 through 15, but I'd like to focus in this review on the heart of the Apostle Paul, how much that he cared for others. As you guys have heard me say before, Paul was a very selfless person. After he came to faith in Christ, he spent all of his time either sharing the gospel in order that many other people would get saved, or if they were saved, he would spend his time teaching them, equipping them with truth, with doctrine, even with theology. Paul understood that Christianity wasn't just justification. It wasn't just, okay, I put my faith in Christ. Okay, great, you're saved. That's it. But it was also, or is also, sanctification. The Christian life, its growth, it is maturing in our walk with the Lord. Matter of fact, this is why Paul says uh, right here, he actually thanked the Lord here in chapter 1, verse 8, where he says to the church in Rome, he says, because your faith, he thanked the Lord, he says, because your faith is being reported all over the world. In other words, the church in Rome had an active faith. People were seeing, people were hearing about their faith being lived out. Okay? They were witnessing changed lives. It's like, man, you know what? There's, there's something different about these people over here who call themselves the church. See? Even though they were all living in Rome, arguably one of the most depraved cities, if not cultures, 
He even later said in chapter 16 how everyone had heard about their obedience. Their obedience, see? It's that livelihood again. Folks, Paul was excited for this church, the church in Rome. He was excited that there were actually Christians in Rome. But he was also thrilled by the fact that they were growing, that they had a testimony to those around them. And then, of course, we see in verses 11 and 12, Paul wanted to be a part of that. Remember, folks, Paul did not start the church in Rome. He has never been to Rome at this point. But he wanted to be a part of that. Look what he said in verses 11 and 12. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul wanted to visit the church in Rome and use the gifts that God had given to him. I'm I'm sure that would be teaching, preaching, leadership, and so forth probably encouragement, but he wanted to use the gifts that God had given him, as he says here, to strengthen the church. You can say to build it up, to encourage the church, okay? He looked at people and he basically said, how can I help? That's the heart of Paul. That's the mind of Paul. What can I do to make your walk with Christ even better? Notice what he says there in verse 13. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. But listen, he says, I wanted to come to you in order that I may have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Folks, it never left Paul's mind that he wanted to visit them. He wanted to go uh, impart wisdom and help this church. It wasn't personal. It wasn't like he wanted to go to Rome and to see all the sights. He literally says here, he wanted to have a harvest among them. That word harvest is simply to say he wanted to be there uh, to see spiritual fruit, to see lives being changed. He wanted to see that even more. He wanted to help. He wanted to be a part of that. Folks, as you know, Paul would not hop on the bus, but he would walk a lot of miles. He would walk from city to city, from church to church, solely for the benefit of everybody else. He wasn't getting some paycheck. He wasn't getting double time. It wasn't like he worked on the weekend, I'm getting some extra cash. He just did it for the benefit the spiritual benefit of everyone else. Matter of fact, the word there, harvest, or maybe some of your translations have the word fruit, it actually speaks of a profit. It speaks of a gain. Paul wanted to go to Rome in order to gain souls. Okay, He wanted to increase, if you will, the number of brothers and sisters in Christ. He always wanted more and more people to have the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, to have their sins forgiven, to become what Scripture tells us is a new creation in Christ. 
Paul's traveling to these churches was always for the benefit of somebody else. It was never selfish, see? And so just in those few verses right there, we can see how Paul lived his life for everyone else. He wanted for them what he himself had personally experienced. I mean, he knew what God had done in his life. He knew the changes that God had made in his life, going from this this arrogant Pharisee to a person who was literally tearing down the church, persecuting Christians, and now to God changing him to be this zealous preacher of the truth who would literally give his very life in order for others to know that Jesus Christ came to die for them. That was his heart. He wanted this for everyone. You see, he knew firsthand that through Christ, God can transform anybody. And basically his heart says, if I can be there, if I can go there to be a part of that, I'll do it. I'll do it. I believe 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, I believe Colossians chapter 1 is a perfect description of what you might call Paul's life goal. What he woke up for every morning. It says that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. He says, to that end, I labor. Nothing about himself. Man, if we could just be a part of presenting everyone perfect in Christ. He didn't want to see spiritual or Christian stagnation. How many people just seek fire insurance? So just, you know, they want Jesus. They, want all the, they don't want Jesus. They just want all the benefits, right? Paul says, I'm here if you need to know Christ, and I'm here if you need to grow and mature in Christ. I want everyone to be presented perfect in Christ. Now, as we leave this section right here, and we're going to move into verses 16 and 17, having now expressed his desire to see people saved as well as maturing, you might say being justified and also sanctified, right? Paul says one more thing about himself, which is not going to be surprising, but then he's going to go a little bit deeper so that the church can understand the depth of what we know as the gospel. Okay? Read with me, if you will, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, actually about himself, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, before uh, we actually begin getting into those uh, verses there, let me just be clear on the topic, the subject matter of the gospel. The word gospel, euangelion is how you would say that, uh, euangelion. It's also a form of where we get evangelical or evangelize, okay? 
But the word gospel simply means what? You know, good news. That's exactly right. It means good news. Obviously, a form of that where I study evangelize is to share the good news, right? This word is used 76 times in the New Testament. Twelve of those are actually right here in the book of Romans. The gospel, folks, is the good news about or of Jesus Christ. I mentioned a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, because Paul made it extremely clear in that section. Paul says in those verses that the gospel is very straight up. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? He says that is the good news. And then he says in that very text, in verse 2 of that text, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, by this gospel you are saved. That's clear, isn't it? Now, he could have said, by the way, as a side note, he could have said, by the gospel you are saved. That had been the same thing, but he was, he was more specific. By this gospel you are saved. Folks, the gospel is not asking Jesus into your heart. It is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel is not God can make a better you. And all the other statements that the world and Christians want to throw out. The gospel also has nothing to do with our works. Nothing. As if somehow, somehow we have a part in our salvation. Matter of fact, that was the mindset of the Judaizers, if you remember, which Paul wrote about in his letter to the church in Galatia. Let me read that. Listen to this, folks. This is really important. See, they had this mindset of adding works to Jesus. Okay, Let me read that. In Galatians chapter 1, I'll start in verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. The word deserting means to change sides. I'm shocked, he says, that you're so quickly changing sides. You're leaving, you're deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. And listen, you're turning to a different Gospel. Remember I said the importance of the word this gospel? You're saved by this gospel, he said. Here he says they were turning to a different gospel, which he says is really no gospel at all. There is no good news, folks, in the message they were preaching. Nothing. He says, evidently, some people, those are the Judaizers, Evidently, some people are trying to throw you into confusion, and they are trying to, listen, pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're perverting. That's a strong word, by the way. They're perverting the gospel. Now, verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven, that's just, that's just Paul saying, I don't care who it is. 
if we should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Do we grasp that, folks? Let them be eternally condemned. You know how you might phrase that today? May they burn in hell. <laughs> right? There is no other way. Eternally condemned. Listen, the truth of the gospel is not something we play with. We don't get to tweak it. Not that it needs tweaking. The gospel is not a game. It's not one-liners. It's the truth of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came into this world, folks, and he died on a cross for our sins, paying our, you and me, paying our sin debt. Something that we deserved. He was buried, as you know, and he rose again on the third day. Jesus defeated death, and he did so proving who he said he was, which is God incarnate, the Messiah, the sinless Lamb of God. There is only one true gospel. There's only one way of salvation, and it is through Jesus Christ. Peter said himself, Acts 4, 12, salvation is found in no one else. He didn't say a choice few. Salvation, that means to be delivered from. That's what the word salvation means. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven. Well, that pretty much excludes it all, doesn't it? To which men must be saved. None. Zero. Matter of fact, Jesus chimed in himself in John 14, 6. I hope you know this. He says, I am, listen, this is important. I am the way. I am the truth. The definite article is important. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one, he says, comes to the Father except through me. The gospel, folks, is all about Jesus Christ plus nothing. Nothing. Right here in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption of Jesus Christ. We could spend all morning going through this of what the New Testament tells us. But now that we understand the purity, the absolute purity, don't mess with the gospel. There's only one. Paul begins by verse 16 by saying, I am not ashamed of it. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, if you've paid attention, folks, to what we've studied so far here in chapter 1, you already know this about Paul. Even just looking at the very few verses that I mentioned in, in, in our review there a few minutes ago, it's clear the Apostle Paul had an unashamed boldness. Maybe sometimes brashness. He had an unashamed boldness. I mean, right here in the previous verse, verse 15, 
Paul said that he is eager, he's eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I'm eager. I want to go there to preach the gospel. It's like he's saying, let me at him. <laughs> I got something I want to tell these people. Now, before you think, well, you know, Darren, big deal. I mean, I, you know, Paul was cool, but look, at he preached in many cities. He was used to that. Well, folks, understand that's what's showing us his courage. That's what's showing us his boldness, okay? In many of his previous mission trips, and I don't have anywhere near the time to go through them, go back and read the book of Acts, okay? Acts is a history book. It's what took place. It's all there, okay? But in these previous mission trips of Paul, he was belittled. He was laughed at. He was mocked. As you know, he was imprisoned, right? In Lystra, he was stoned and left there for dead. <laughs> and now you have Paul here saying, man, I really want to come to Rome. <laughs> I don't think he was ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He dealt with the mocking, the laughing, the scourging, you name it, he, he, he handled it. I want to come to Rome. Now, folks, Rome at that time was pretty much the capital of the known world, okay? And let's just say Rome wasn't, was not known for their hard stance on morality. <laughs> that wasn't Rome. People were not going to be standing in the streets uh, where Paul entered the gates going, oh, hell, it's great. Here comes the apostle Paul. That was not going to happen because you know why? Paul was going to come into that city. This was his goal, was to come into that city and honestly look at him and say, you folks are depraved sinners and you need a savior. And boy, do I have a message for you. You know what? Most people then, like today, like I was before I got saved, we kind of liked our immorality. We liked living that way, and so would they. And honestly, they weren't going to really want to hear otherwise. If you're like me, when people would walk up to me and try to witness to me, I, I really don't want to hear it. I am enjoying my sin. Thank you very much. That's kind of the way they would have dealt with it. Like I said, they weren't known for their hard stance on morality. So all that being said, folks is that he had no reservations. Paul was not reluctant. No matter what took place, no matter what other people's thinking was, no matter how they treated him, no matter the hate, he would share the gospel no matter what. Never ashamed. And as far as Rome is concerned, I'll guarantee you, Paul was ready to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with any philosopher or any religious guru that was there, ready to challenge him. But you know what? He tells us why. He tells us why, actually, right here in verse 16. Let's continue reading. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And here it is. Because, here's the answer, 
It is, it meaning the gospel, it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Folks, Paul knows from experience what God has already done through the gospel. Through his proclamation of the good news of Christ, he has seen personally God's power transforming hearts and lives. He's seen it. He says here in verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. God uses, God works through this gospel for those who believe, okay? The power of God will save a fallen, sinful soul. And by the way, you'll notice it's not, once again, it's not the gospel plus something. It's not the power of God plus something, right? It's important we know that. The power of God alone through the preaching of the gospel is sufficient to save men from sin and actually provide and give them eternal life. How amazing is that, folks? And to a certain extent, miraculous. That through the gospel, which we just talked about a couple minutes ago, God exerts his power. He didn't say hear it. He didn't say know it. He then said, believe it. You must, he says, one must believe, didn't he? Believe, he says. Listen, folks, the efficacy depends on man's willingness to receive that message. Okay? Salvation for everyone who believes. You've heard me say this before, but I'll continue to say it. There's only one thing, folks, that keeps man out of heaven, isn't there? There's just one. There's only one thing that stops him from being on good terms with his creator. And I just heard it. Sin. Sin. That's it. Listening to some, some positive, feel-good message from the likes of Joel Osteen might make you feel content about yourself. It might make you want to pat yourself on the back and go, boy, I'm really not that bad of a person, am I? But it's not the gospel. And it will not remove your sin. That nonsense can be told to you week after week after week, but it won't remove your sin. That message is useless. Only through belief, or if you will, trust, or faith, however you want to phrase that, in the gospel can one's sins be paid for and therefore be adopted, adopted into the kingdom of God. Many years ago, I'm sure Donna remembers this, but when we were in California, uh, a young couple young, probably in her late 20s, young now. They came to the church that we were at, and I invited them to a get-together that we were already going to have. And they came, and while they were there, I sat both of them down, 
and I, I asked the woman there, I said, um, share with me your testimony. Well, we didn't know her. Hey, share with me your, your testimony. Share with me just a little background on, on when you became a Christian. Her answer was, well, I, I've just always believed. I could not help myself. Really? You came out of the womb believing? I had to say it. I, I literally I couldn't help myself. You came out of the womb <laughs> believing? You've just always believed? I then said, look, it, you don't have to know the day. You don't have to know the month. I mean, there's no specific in that, right? But was there, are you here to tell me there was never a time that you can recommend, there's never a time that you can um, remember when you responded to the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ? And of course, she hemmed and hawed, and the ultimate answer is no. But folks, this is important because it doesn't matter if you grew up in the church. Some of you have. It doesn't matter if you're consistent every week. It doesn't matter how much knowledge that you have. It doesn't matter how much you learned from VBS or Awanas. Those are good things. Don't get me wrong. But it doesn't matter how much you learned from that if you don't repent of your sins and believe the gospel message and turn to him in faith. A head knowledge of the Bible will not save anyone. Sitting in a pew which, or chairs will not save you. Volunteering at your church will not save you. Ephesians 2.8, many of you know it, for it is by grace that you are saved through what? Faith. <laughs> through faith. Belief. I know for many of you that is so simplistic, but for so many it is not. I grew up in the church. I know the answer to that question. But what have you done with the message of Jesus Christ? Ending verse 16, Paul then added to that, he says, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. What does that mean? I mean, he says it three times in this letter. Well, to be honest with you, it's simply talking about uh, chronologically salvation came first to the Jews before it did the Gentiles. Okay? Some of you might remember when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, verse 22, Jesus said, you know, you know the Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, meaning the Jews, worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, he said. Folks, remember, the Jews were God's chosen people. Okay? Dave mentioned that just a briefly this morning. But the Jews were God's chosen people. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2, you 
are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. God said, I choose you. You're my chosen people. Right here in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, speaking of the advantage of being a Jew, Paul says, they have been entrusted, the Jews, with the very words of God. Meaning at that time, God gave us, right? God gave us Genesis to Malachi, what we call the Old Testament. God gave it to the Jews. The very words of God were given to the Jews. Matter of fact, here in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, once again, speaking of the Jews, Paul said, theirs, the Jews, is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs is the covenant, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises, he said. Those were given to the Jews. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from there is the human ancestry of Christ, he says. But you see what he's saying? It came to them, first to the Jews. They had the message. It started with them. See? Even Paul, here in the New Testament, as you know, Paul was an apostle to the who? Gentiles, right? He was an apostle to the Gentiles, but yet when he would go from city to city to city, go back, by the way, and look at Acts chapters 13 through 19, when he'd go from city to city, where was the first place he went to? I know he knows this. The synagogues. He went to preach to the Jews. They should have been the one who should have turned instantly. They knew the truth. They had the truth. Salvation was first brought to the Jews. The Jews were first, they were offered first the good news of the coming Messiah. Matter of fact, even going back is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Theologians call it the proto-evangelium. It's simply a slick word, but the bottom line is it's where he will crush you. You bruise his heel, he will crush your head. That was the, the, the seed of the woman. The very first little crumb of what was to come. In Genesis chapter 3. Still continuing on the same subject matter here of the gospel. Paul now says in verse 17, I promise this verse won't take near as long. But he says in verse 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness that is by, I'm sorry, went skip the line. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's begin with the very first statement there that he gives. He says, for in the gospel, right? He's still talking about the gospel. For in the gospel, it says, a righteousness from God is revealed or uncovered, if you will. Now, you might have another translation that says, a righteousness of God. Did you notice that? 
The NIV says a righteousness from God. Other translations say a righteousness of God. Now, there is a difference there, okay? But theologians, generally speaking, come to the same conclusion because really the text comes to the same conclusion. What the NIV is doing is it's basically giving you the end result. In other words, this is what Paul's trying to get across. Okay, now just let me explain real quick. Yes, it is. It is talking about the righteousness of God. God is, contains, in his very nature, he is righteous. Okay? But through faith in the gospel, through our trusting in his death for our forgiveness, that righteousness, right, God's righteousness, okay, is passed on to us. Hence the words, the righteousness from God. Does that make sense to you? It is God's righteousness, but that righteousness is now coming from God to us if we place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? To quote Kenneth Wiest in his Greek studies, he says, it is a righteousness bestowed on man by God. Because understand, folks, we don't have any righteousness. Let's just be clear. It's bestowed on man by God. The state of the justified man, meaning the Christian, is due to God. The righteousness which becomes his is that which God ascribes to him, or if you will, to you and me, to the believer in Christ. So through faith in the gospel, God not only removes our sins, right? He forgives us of our sin debt, but he imparts to us his righteousness. Theologians call that imputation, imputed righteousness. How many heard that term before? A few of you. Imputed righteousness. Folks, the Christian, through faith, stands in a right relationship with God because we are now justified. You know what the word justified means? Declared righteous. When you hear that word justified, it means we are declared righteous. We're declared. We're not righteous. There's nothing righteousness about us. Sadly, we will even continue to struggle and sin for the rest of our lives. We're not perfect, righteous people. But God imputes to us his righteousness. Listen, folks, the, the gospel would not be good news if it only disclosed God's righteousness. I mean, that's great. God is holy and righteous. We know that. But it's good news because in and through the power of God in the gospel, we just talked about it, that righteousness is now given to us. That is good news, folks. Matter of fact, back in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, last book that we studied here. Paul says, I want to be found in him, speaking of the future, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law. Today we might say from, from works. 
I, I don't want to stand before God in my own filthy righteousness from trying to earn, but that which is, listen, folks, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He just laid it out right there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, what many people call the clearest, really kind of a, a deeper look at the gospel, it says this, God made him, that's Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's like that's what took place in the gospel. Folks, because of the cross, God looks at you and me as believers, as righteous. God looks at you and me, he looks at believers, if you will, through a lens. And that lens is Christ. Here's God. Here's Christ. And then here's us, right? God sees us through Christ. We're not righteous. But through Christ, we are. We're still sinners. He sees us through Jesus Christ. He imputes to us his righteousness. Lastly, in verse 17, he says this righteousness is by faith. Now, if you have the NIV, it says... By faith from first to last. Other translations will say this righteousness is from faith to faith. Okay? Literally, it is a righteousness that is out of faith into faith. Ek pisness, ice pisness. Out of faith into faith. Now, for the sake of time and for your sanity, I will not spend much time going through all that because you're going to go, oh. But I just want to say this. If you look at the rest of the verse, I believe Paul makes the point of what it means. It means beginning with faith and continuing in faith, from faith to faith, out of faith and into faith. It's continuing one commentator says, from faith to faith to faith to faith, it's what it says. It's continuing. And I say this because the end of verse 17, you'll notice it's quoting uh, Habakkuk 2.4. Because it says, the righteous will live by faith. In other words, we're saved by faith. Now, we already knew that, right? We know that already. He's already talked about it. That's the first faith. We know we're saved by faith. But now he says, we live by faith in the same verse. So it's that continuing faith. Our faith is not, if you will, a one-time act. It's a way of life, isn't it? It's a way of life. We are made righteous by God through faith and will continue through life through faith. Constantly. Folks, through the eyes of the Apostle Paul, that is the theology of the gospel. 
It's the theology of the gospel. And I hope it helps us to understand not only the truth down to the crumb, the purity of the gospel that it's not messed with, but that there's power in the gospel. And that is the only way for salvation for those who believe, not for those who've heard it and can quote it. And God gives us his righteousness. We don't earn it, and we're still not righteous. But praise God, he gives it to us. There's no other way. There's no other way. And we're saved by faith, and we live by faith. All that broken down to Paul saying, there's the details of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will continue off of that because really for a few chapters, you find more of uh, in-depth teaching on that very subject matter. Like I said, it's no question one of the most theological books in the New Testament. But I hope that was a blessing to you all. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're grateful that we can study this text. I know for me, I, I, I do love uh, doctrine and theology and when you have to almost not say as much as you want just so you can get through two verses. But Lord, it's really, really great stuff. And I hope that everybody who hears this, Lord, will understand that, that uh, what the true gospel is and what it truly means and how powerful it is and what you do through the gospel to save the lives of those who believe. And Lord, that you are so good to us that you also impute us your righteousness. How awesome is that, Lord? Because we know that we still struggle. We know, even as believers, we're not perfect people. We're perfect in your eyes because you see us through Christ. But Lord, we know that every day it's still a struggle out there. We fight with our sin nature but Lord, we're grateful that you have imputed to us that righteousness, that way that one day when we stand before you, you don't look at us and say, oh man, you're messed up. You, Lord, you will look at us and see the righteousness of Christ. That in itself is amazing. We can give you thanks a million times over for that. We're grateful. Lord, may those things stick in our hearts and stick in our minds and certainly continue to be there as, as we move through the book of Romans, as there will be so much more than that. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.